You're listening to Wake Up Call with Christina Previtt. I'm the CEO and co-owner of New Jersey Divorce Solutions, a law firm located in Edison, New Jersey. I've been practicing exclusively divorce and family law for the past 16 years. Everyone has a story. I interview them. Wake Up Call is an opportunity for you to hear inspiring stories from people who are making hard decisions, overcoming their fears, and living their most authentic life. Hey, everybody. This is Wake Up Call, the podcast. I'm your host, Christina Previtt, and joining me today for another edition of the Hashtag Fem Doctor series is Dr. Jenna Lou, MD, who is a psychiatrist in Los Angeles, California. Welcome, Dr. Lou. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thank you for saying yes. I'm excited to interview a psychiatrist because I think some of us out here as laymen feel like psychiatrists have some... I don't know, special skill to read people's minds or something like that, uh, to know something about us and human nature that um, are like secrets to the universe. I don't know if you realize that, but I think people do. That's really interesting because in my social life, whenever I tell someone that I'm a psychiatrist, they're like, don't read my mind. Don't psychoanalyze me. <laughs> it's true. I mean, I, I'm not quite sure where that comes from, but I guess as a layman, I can only tell you how I experience it. I feel like you are, you have this extensive training and experience working with people, um, about how their minds work, about what's going on when something's going wrong. And maybe sometimes you can see things about people just in your, uh, your, you know, conversations with them or observing them that the rest of us just aren't attuned to. Is that true or not? Actually, I don't, I can't, so I can't read anyone's mind. So I don't have that supernatural power. I mean, I would love to, but it just doesn't, doesn't happen for me. And I don't think it happens for most psychiatrists. Um, and in terms of seeing something that, you know, is like, uh, something about your personality, something about you. I have to say, most people like me, I really don't see anything per se. Like I, they just come across as themselves. And, you know, but the more people reveal themselves to you, the more you get a picture, unless it's like very glaring that they have some sort of a diagnosable condition. I really don't think much about, you know, hmm, I don't psychoanalyze people like me. Like, for example, you, I don't, I don't do that. Plus, I'm not being paid to do this sort of work socially. So I don't, I just turn it all off <laughs> when I'm socializing or if I'm meeting someone outside of the office. And I yeah. think we'll like that too, you know, as a, an attorney, I mean, I, I'm sure you're not thinking like, okay, this could be a client. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> I mean, sometimes in my travels, if somebody says they, did certain things maybe with their money or a transaction, I might think to myself like, Oh, I don't know if that's such a good idea, but I, I don't think it's my place to say anything or point it out unless, and until they have asked, um, because you can't just go around inserting yourself into other people's lives, right? Like when they need help or want help, they'll ask for it. Um, yeah. Well, that's a really interesting question because the last time this notably happened to me where I was looking at some somebody or watching somebody interact and um, was actually 
when I was watching the presidential debates, I was like, oh, there is some access to issue going on with one of the candidates. And it's not a good thing. I don't think I need to ask which one. But we don't want to, we're not going to turn this into a conversation about politics, but that is, that is actually really interesting that you say that maybe I should interview you in another time to talk just about that topic. Cause I think a lot of people would be interested. Yeah. Well, um, it's not so much relevant now since he's out of the spotlight, but I think that in terms of the professional conduct of psychiatrists, uh, the American Psychiatric Association has issued a code of conduct that specifically says that, you know, when you, that you cannot diagnose a public personality without actually having evaluated them and, you know, seen them clinically in a therapeutic setting. Darn. So, yeah. Yeah. Ah. But no, no, some, some, psychologists have stepped forwarded and said, you know what? I don't care. I'm just going to speak my mind. It, it can't even have some sort of disclaimer. Like I have not evaluated this person. So there could be information that I don't know that I haven't considered. You can't do that. No, um, I'm sure you can, but I don't think, I don't think any of my colleagues have no one that I know of has stepped forward and said anything, but you know, it's a code of conduct. It's sort of like, this is on your honor. And if you were a good psychiatrist, then you would follow the code. Okay. I get that. I think sort of the same rules apply to attorneys too. We're, we're bound by ethical standards, even though lawyers don't always get a good rap in the community for being honest and trustworthy. <laughs> um, you know, hence all the lawyer jokes, but Actually, most of us are largely because we're professionals and we're held to a higher standard, much like you are, because of the oath that we take. Yeah, yeah. Two of my sisters are attorneys, and so I know all about like the ethics. They're they're so conscientious in their behavior. Yeah. Okay. So then we won't diagnose Trump. It's not appropriate. We'll, we'll save that for someone else. Um, so my first question for you is, did you grow up knowing that you wanted to be a physician? Uh, no, no, that wasn't until college. I mean, I, growing up, I, I wanted to be a secretary because there was like a secretary's day. You gave your secretary flowers. I thought, oh my God, that's so cool. But um, no, it wasn't until college that I had this idea that I wanted to be a physician. And a lot of it was based on the idea that I wanted to give back. I wanted to make my life meaningful. That's so interesting because so many of the femme doctors I've interviewed have said that very thing or something similar. Yeah, you definitely... Um, it's, it's important to have a sense that what you're doing is important and worthwhile. And I mean, I'm not saying like, you know, medicine is the only way to go. I think in any profession, you have to get a sense of, um, well, is this job something that I would excel at? Is it something that's important to me? And is it something that's going to enrich other people? So how did you decide that medicine was the thing that was going to do that for you? Um, well, you know, 
it was a thing where a, a lot of it was my faith. And so, and I was kind of wide eyed and really not fully aware of what it would be like <laughs> because and, and the thing is, anywhere, any profession you go into, unless you have a parent who was actually in that profession, you kind of don't know. And so I True. thought, oh, it's so cool to help people and to make lives, you know, lighter and easier and to cure people. Um, but the reality is we rarely ever cure anyone because in, in the field of medicine, cure just doesn't exist or is very rare. And most of the time you're dealing with chronic conditions and difficult people and the reimbursement is ever getting smaller and smaller and so um i would say that you know um try to find out as much as possible what you want to get into uh, the downsides and the upsides yeah i'm with you there i didn't grow up with a family of lawyers so i can relate to that as well it's the practice of law is very different than going to law school even and very different from what they portray on television, which is probably true for doctors too. Yeah. I mean, I've seen some of the shows and it's very exciting. It's kind of glamorous, but the, the reality is, I mean, in my practice as a psychiatrist, it's actually really, really boring. And uh, most of the time I see people who are, you know, anxious, depressed, but then every once in a while I get, scared out of my mind. And I'm like, oh my God, please don't do something to hurt yourself or hurt other people. And maybe you need to call 911. And so it's like a lot of, a lot of boredom. And then, oh my God, I'm freaking out. I have no idea what to do. So It is a big responsibility. I mean, not to scare you, obviously you already appreciate that, but I guess if you really break it down and think about it, it is a big responsibility to examine somebody and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but are, do you always have to make a determination when you're engaging with a patient, whether they're a danger to themselves or other people? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, most of the people I see are pretty stable and, you know, um, a lot of it is just your run of the mill stress, work stress, marital stress, family stress, but then every once in a while you get someone who is like suicidal and hell bent on killing themselves. And it's like, that's when I start to have my heart pound and I'm like, oh my God, I need to be there with you and like stop you. <laughs> but you know, you can't do that. And, um, and then every once in a while I have someone who is psychotic or manic and they're completely out of touch with reality and you're scared they might do something irrational. So like I said, a lot of it is just mundane, mundane, punctuated by periods of complete freaking out. Yeah. You know, it just seems to me that at least here in our country, in the United States, that it seems like everybody has stress, anxiety, and or depression. Do you have any thoughts about why we all seem to suffer from this and why is everybody on Zoloft or Xanax or, or some type of medication like that? Well, I think that um, in this country in particular, it has to do with the way that we perceive um, mental health. Um, 
So I think that there's a greater um, acknowledgement that uh, people do suffer from mental health conditions. And then um, there is a greater feeling of freedom to express how you feel and acceptance that, you know, um, stress is a daily part of our conversation. Um, whereas I know in Asian countries, um, they don't talk about how they feel so often and they don't really say, you know, I feel scared or I feel anxious or even I feel sad. Rather, they somaticize it. So we see among Asian cultures, a lot of somatization, turning the feeling into a sensation in the body, like pain, headache, aches and pains, abdominal pain, chest pain. And um, so I do see like in Asians, you know, a lot of people coming in with somatic pain problems, but the, the, the truth is they're depressed and it's just their body's way of saying, I'm not happy, but they can't say it because it's just not in their culture. So I think it's a good thing that increasingly in our culture, we've become accepting of, um, of the, of the need to express how you feel. And stress is normal, anxiety is actually normal. Uh, if you didn't have anxiety, you wouldn't know that, okay, I need to prepare or I need to think about this and solve the problem. The anxiety tells you something very important about your situation and you shouldn't ignore it. But do a lot of us worry excessively? You know, like I feel like sometimes even with myself that my level of worry about something doesn't seem to match up with the thing I'm worrying about. Like if I'm worrying about getting to the gym later and how I'm going to fit it into my schedule, that's kind of like a worry of a one or two on a scale of one to 10. It shouldn't be a nine. Right. So sometimes um, the worrying can be excessive to the content. The worry can be all encompassing and all the time. So, you know, to worry about a, um, a court date, for example, in, in an attorney's case, or to worry about an exam, that's normal worry. And um, that propels you to prepare. So you would study, you would prepare notes, et cetera, whatever you need to do in order to get a good outcome. So in that case, the worry is adaptive, but then some people just worry about everything. They worry about going to the supermarket. They worry about their hair. They worry about, you know, the weather. <laughs> and so it becomes um, constant red alarm going off. Like the alarm is sounding all the time. And that's when you find someone like me who can help you <laughs> and um, or a psychologist. So we call that generalized anxiety. And it can be very debilitating when you have false alarms going in your head all the time. I mean, can you imagine you wouldn't be able to function? You'd be a nervous wreck. So your brain's telling you something that simply is not consistent with reality. But the good news is there's treatment and the treatment is often very effective. I mean, Generalized anxiety is one of the disorders where we really treat that well. So I see a lot of people with anxiety and they almost always get better. Well, that's good news. How do you do that? Is it, how do you know, you know, what is your consideration as the psychiatrist to know, does this person just need, um, you know, stress management techniques or something of that nature, or do they actually need medication? Well, 
I would say that it depends on the individual and how they feel about medications and their cognitive capacity to understand what's going on in their brain and their ability to step outside of their brain and say, okay, I have a brain problem. You have to be able to step back and say, it's not me that's, you know, sounding these false alarms all the time. It's my brain. And so I've got to step back outside of myself almost. And that's the work of therapy is to realize that, okay, there's, there's a problem. (laughs) And, you know, what is the problem? How do I solve the problem? What do I need to do? And how do I implement it in my life? So that's therapy. And so what I do is I just say to the individual, okay, so this is what's going on here. And um, this is why you have your problem. And this is the way in which you can overcome the problem. And oftentimes it is insight and awareness. That's the key. Because just for them, they're so scared. They think that this is their reality. They're worried all the time. And oftentimes the anxiety is so severe. Sometimes they think they're going to die when they have a medical problem, like a heart attack or a stroke. And so it, it sometimes gets to that level. We see anxiety um, in the emergency room all the time. People coming in highly anxious, thinking they're having a heart attack. Um, But anyway, so I answer their question. Look, you're not having a heart attack. Of course, we have to rule that out, you know. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) They usually get an EKG. They get cardiac enzymes. So we rule all that out. And so for sure, they're not having a heart attack or a medical problem. And so I say to them, okay, this is your problem. This is how you can overcome it. And this is how you got it. And then I tell them a story. It's not a fake story. I mean, it's the best story that scientific evidence has for them so far. And so, and it's a very compelling story because it involves them. And I say, this is how you will get better. What's the story? Well, the story is, okay, you've got your, um, your brain is basically sounding all these false alarms. And, you know, if you have a family history of it, I would say that, yes, there is a circuitry in your brain that is going haywire and it is creating a lot of problems for you because it's creating all these false alarms going off. And so you've got to step back and be aware of what's happening to you. And then you've got to talk back to the false alarm and say, no, I am not going to get triggered by this. I'm going to take a deep breath. And then we give them like coping mechanisms, like, okay, breathe. Breathing is fundamental. If you look at any of my posts on Instagram, Dr. Janet Liu, um, there's a lot about meditation and the breathing. Because when you breathe deeply, then you activate your vagus nerve. So your diaphragm is connected to your vagus nerve. When you activate that nerve, you activate the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the relax nerves, the rest and relax nerves. And so that will lower your blood pressure. It will lower your pulse. And when the blood pressure and the pulse are lowered, you've won half the battle because you've calmed the body down. Now you just have to calm the mind down. So if someone's in that situation where they're, they feel like they're on the verge of having some sort of anxiety or panic attack, how should they breathe? Like you said, breathe deeply, but should they do that a certain number of times for a certain length of time to be the most effective? Yeah. So I tell them, you know, take 10 deep breaths. 
um, more, you know, like sometimes people get caught up in the breathing too. And they're like, oh my God, am I breathing right? So, I mean, the, the key is you want to take deep breaths. So you breathe in and you count to four and then you breathe out and you want your out breaths to be uh, twice as long as your in breaths. Um, so that's like a guideline and, and you want to slow the breathing. So in between the breaths, you want to count maybe four counts and, um, and maybe do that like five times. And then you want to also focus on relaxing your body. People don't know that they, they actually can relax their muscles and their, and their, um, their shoulders, their face, and you have to work at it to know that you can relax it and to know the difference between clenched up and relaxed. And sometimes you clench up, you don't even know it. But yeah. then if, yeah, if you're in touch with your body and you're aware, then you can relax. And just having the body be centered and the body be um, calm is half the battle in terms of calming the mind. It's that's so powerful. And I think a lot of people maybe previously, because I know meditation and yoga and, and breathing techniques are in our, um, are present more in the media than they ever were. But some people will look at that and go, Oh, that's so woo woo. I'm not going to do deep breathing. Um, when you suggest this to patients, are, do you get a warm reception to it? No, I don't. Oh, you don't. <laughs> What do you no, say to them? By the time they've gotten to me, they're like, yeah, no, no, no. I tried that already. That doesn't work. Oh, no, I, I don't want to try that anymore. It really doesn't work. So, um, so yeah, I'm saying it is something that's worth trying. And I'll say, you know, try it again. Try it again and again and again. Because just because you try it once and it doesn't work doesn't mean that you can't practice at it. But, no, eventually – we talk about medications. And so that's where I come in because I prescribe the medications. And so, um, you know, sometimes people's anxieties are just so overwhelming and it becomes so compelling that it is very difficult to abort that response. And so, um, you know, sometimes if it's very severe or they're going through a crisis and that's fueling the panic, like if you've lost your job a loved one has passed away or you're in big legal problems you know I get a lot of people with legal issues and it's very very threatening to their sense of well-being um, and there's so much chaos in their life so that um, it's very difficult to just say oh breathe, breathe deeply that's all you have to do I mean I yeah, still right it sounds simplistic yeah. Uh, so anyway, uh, a brief prescription for Xanax, Ativan can be very helpful. Um, but knowing that these can be addictive, I don't say, okay, you know, take it for years. It, it's always brief because it can bring so much calm and so much um, help to someone who's in an acute crisis. But sometimes it works way too well. And then the person ends up getting addicted to it. So it is a bit of a risk. But um, in terms of the short term, if someone's in a crisis, I have no problem writing them a prescription for Xanax. Well, do you think that there's an environmental component too? I mean, I feel like when I'm around someone who's negative, 
it's kind of contagious. I don't actually uh, like to spend a lot of time around people that are just really negative and always complaining and, you know, always yeah. see the negative side of things. So Yes, yes. And that's why, I think that's something we both have in common because I'm around negative people all the time. <laughs> Your patients, right? Yeah, I mean, I'm around people whose lives have been turned upside down. They bring their chaos in and it literally overwhelms the room. But, I mean, you're there to help. So that's why you need to be, you and I need to be really stable. And if you are, you know, in some ways drowning in your own interpersonal problems, your personal life issues, it makes dealing with that work even more difficult. So um, you have to be able to take care of yourself, both you and I. So the way I take my take care of myself is I exercise. I have my own therapy. I've had a lot of therapy in the past to get to know my issues and to get to know what triggers me. Therapy is traditionally a part of the psychiatrist training um, because you can't help other people if you have blind spots yourself, right? Yeah. yeah. And then um, for me, I do yoga. I tried meditation, but um, I'm not good at it. I can't really do it. But the yoga to me is meditation. It's like moving meditation. And then um, mostly nowadays, I don't do therapy anymore. I just, I just exercise. I run. That's the way I, I relieve my stress. How about you? I mean, what are your ideas on how to take care of yourself? I mean, you must see really, you know, people at their most difficult times in their life. Well, I think that um, something you and I talked about before we started recording was maintaining healthy boundaries with my own clients. Um, you know, part of that is is having designated work time and having designated personal time. I know a lot of attorneys that will just, their cell phone's always on and they give their number to clients and clients could be calling them on weekends, at night or emailing and they feel obligated and for some reason to respond. But I always tell them, you know, I think that's a little dangerous because first of all, you have a business relationship. You know, you might have compassion and empathy for the person, but you have to remember that this is a business relationship so that you don't get overly emotionally involved in it um, and, and therefore less able to be effective for them. And I think part of that is maintaining those healthy boundaries, you know, being off at certain times. So I observed that and I, that's a lesson I learned the hard way, you know, being available all the time and sort of getting burnt out from always having to take on other people's problems. Um, so that's one way, but other ways, like you said, exercise, I think is huge. If I sort of fall off the exercise wagon for a little while and I don't exercise for a few days, I definitely feel a difference. I start to feel a little restless and anxious. So I have noticed that in my own life that exercise helps. Um, eating better helps. You know, I had a doctor suggest to me to just, you know, just start by eating more vegetables and eating less processed food, less carbs. And oddly enough, it really does seem to help. I do have a meditation practice. It's a bit inconsistent, but when I know when I really need it, there are times when I feel like I really need it more than others. And I will make time to meditate, even if it's just 
it, like you said, just like conscious breathing, you know, doing those breathing exercises, um, not allowing myself to have certain people in my, in my universe, I've had to really critically look at who is in my life. And if there are people that I just don't feel good around for whatever reason, you know, like, why is this person in my life just because I've known them a long time or maybe because we're related or because they're close to my family. I think a lot of people have a hard time letting go of people that aren't offering something positive in their lives. So that's a pretty long list, but it's, it's stuff that I've accumulated over the years. And I actually, when I asked you the question about environmental issues, do you talk to people about that very thing? Like if there's a family member, maybe they live with their mom and dad, or they have a spouse that is, is critical or, you know, doesn't support them emotionally. Do you talk to them about that? Oh, all the time. <laughs> yes. Yes. Because a lot of the people who fall into this depression state, it's not because they have a brain abnormality or a biochemistry abnormality in their brain. It's because their lives have become so stressful and overwhelming that they have shut down. And so medications are a balm, B-A-L-M. Medications are just a shortcut and they don't really change your life. You know, you, in order to overcome the anxiety or depression, oftentimes people have to make tough decisions in their life. You know, if it, um, the most common problem I see is people's jobs, their supervisor, their colleagues or coworkers, it's cutthroat and they're suffering. And so, you know, I have to talk to them and say, we've got to make some decisions here. Sometimes it's a marriage. Sometimes it's an abusive marriage, emotionally, physically. And I, I have to say, you know, you've got to make a decision. You've got to change something. Now, for some people, it could be going to couples therapy and fixing the marriage or finding a better way of coexisting. For some people, it's a divorce, you know. Um, so everyone's journey is a little different, but... Um, Certainly the medications help, but they're, they're not the true cure. Are they kind of just a temporary band-aid, like, um, sort of like a triage, like, okay, this is what we need to do right now to stop the bleeding. Yeah. So it's, it's a difficult picture, like in terms of like, when you have uh, an acute stressor like um if you're in crisis then so a benzodiazepine like xanax ativan valium lorazepam um there's a ton of them on the market that can be very helpful but that is definitely a temporary band-aid because as soon as you stop the medication your anxiety comes back full force or depression um and then there's ssris which stand for selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor that's a fancy way of saying that the drug just increases your brain's level of serotonin. And um, serotonin in the frontal area right here, okay, that's where all the thinking and the planning um, happens. So the serotonin helps your brain to actually grow and make more connections. Um, and so it helps you to tolerate stress better, to tolerate difficulties 
and to find answers and solutions to your problem. Um, now, for some people, it can really help. It can be life-saving because it can lift their mood enough, lift their energy level enough so that they can find the resolve within themselves to make the changes they need in their life and be happy again or for the first time ever, you know? So it's, yeah. it's very, you know, and then there are some people who they have a genetic predisposition to depressive disorders. And so they need these medications for the long haul. Um, so everyone's a little different. That's why you have to see a psychiatrist to get it all figured out for you. So if somebody is not getting enough serotonin, what is the reason for that? Oh my God, that's an excellent question. You're getting all these great questions. Like my patients don't ask me these questions. <laughs> they just say, yeah, give it to me. Yeah, but, yeah. So there's a lot of reasons. And it's not even that you have a deficiency of serotonin per se, um, because the reason why they have this um, deficiency of brain hormones, so we're talking not just serotonin, but dopamine, norepinephrine, and serotonin. So dopamine helps with concentration, energy, reward, motivation, norepinephrine, similar, helps with mood and concentration. Serotonin helps with feeling calm, feeling connected. And these may all be low in someone who is in an acute stressful situation or a depressive disorder. And um, in terms of the etiology, like how did it get this way? Where did it come from? Why do people... Why do some people get crushed by stress and why do some people seem to flourish with the challenge? I mean, that's an excellent question. And um, so I think it's, it's basically what the Freudian psychiatrist, what Freud told us from the start, which is what was their childhood like? Really? Because yeah, there's a lot of research now showing that childhood adversity, childhood abuse, childhood mistreatment can cause later on neuroinflammation that can create a brain environment in which uh, when you encounter stress, severe stress in your adulthood can result in um, a depressive disorder that requires treatment um, or an anxiety disorder that becomes so overwhelming that the person cannot cope and they need help. So uh, there's all sorts of um, blood chemistries that we do now to look at, you know, that sort of inflammation. Uh, it's called neuroinflammation and it's related. Some of it is traceable to childhood adversity because they've done studies that track people who've had childhood adverse events. And um, that is correlated with adverse adult um, health outcomes like depression, even high blood pressure, heart disease cancer. That's fascinating. I never heard that before. Yeah, it's the work of um, a lot of researchers, but the, the researcher I like, I follow a lot is Dr. Charles Rasson. Um, he is a researcher in inflammation and um, mood disorders. I keep hearing about inflammation in so many different contexts, you know, how it causes uh, now from a psychiatric or psychological standpoint, but also from, um, I've been researching a lot about gut health and 
I'm learning so much about how our gut health and inflammation affects, well, actually can affect feelings of depression, um, but metabolism and immunity and so many things. Is that something that you think about in your practice? Because I've actually heard that the gut is referred to as the second brain. Yes, yes. I was never taught this in medical school some 20 years ago, but now our research is ever evolving and our understanding of the brain is ever evolving. So now it turns out that the gut and the brain talk to each other. And um, specifically, it has to do with the gut bacteria. They call it the microbiome. Um, And so the interesting thing is um, that, you know, we've evolved um, over thousands of years and um, the gut bacteria have been with us ever since our evolution started. And so um, they have mechanisms to communicate with the brain. Um, And so when you have, you know, um, something called leaky gut, which is um, a, it's, it's sort of like a layman's terms, but there's a lot of scientific evidence about that. Have you heard that term? I have. What is the medical terminology for that? I don't think there is a medical terminology because <laughs> it's not really a disorder. It's not an illness per se, but it's just a state of being where your gut um, is permeable to bacteria. So the bacteria, gut is basically just a lining and the food which comes from the outside, um, passes through your gut and the food is absorbed through your gut. And that's how you get your nutrients. But, um, sometimes, um, the gut lining gets thinned out and, um, and then the bacteria in your gut, which are normally in your gut, they can then permeate through the gut lining and enter your bloodstream. And the bacteria are, toxic. And so your body mounts an immune response and causes inflammation. And that inflammation, those factors associated with the inflammation go into your brain. And that's the message that the brain gets is, oh my God, there's inflammation. And that causes um, brain dysfunction, which can cause symptoms like anxiety, depression, poor concentration, brain fog, so you, uh, yeah. So what's the reason why that bacteria, why do you get leaky gut? Well, um, some people think that it's because you don't have enough fiber in your diet. So the fiber, when you eat foods that are high in fiber, so that could be things like um, fruits and vegetables are very high in fiber. The fiber um, causes a uh, lining. It, it causes like a viscous lining along your gut. And so bacteria almost always prefer the fiber. They prefer to eat the fiber over eating you, your lining. So they eat the fiber and they're happy and they grow. They don't eat you. And the fiber lines the the gut, right? So the gut doesn't get eaten by the bacteria. Um, And so there is the, the, the lining of the gut is nice and thick and it's healthy and no bacteria gets through. So when you're evaluating patients, do you talk to them about their diet? Oh, yes. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't go through like what I did with you, you know, the whole theory about fiber and how important it is to have a healthy gut. 
people don't talk about that, you know, um, and the, you know, the pathophysiology of it takes so much time and some people don't want to hear it either. Um, so I just say, you know, there's been a lot of association between a healthy diet and mental health. And so, you know, we go through the Mediterranean diet. I have a printout for them where I email it to them, what a Mediterranean diet looks like. There's one diet I particularly like, it's called Mind Diet, which is a combination of a low salt diet and a Mediterranean diet. So that diet has been shown to be helpful to reduce not just um, heart disease, which you don't wanna get, it's terrible, and dementia. But there's also evidence that it can prevent depression. Yeah, I'm not sure which one's worse, heart disease or dementia. Both are pretty bad. <laughs> it's all connected. I mean, the yeah. truth is, if you have heart disease in about 10 years, you may get dementia too. Because if you think about it, if your heart's not healthy, it's not pumping enough oxygen to your brain. If your brain doesn't get enough oxygen, it's going to malfunction and you may get dementia. So it's all interconnected. It really is. And I'm it's this is really turning on the the very nerdy side of me hearing all of the science behind it but you know i think for some people to know that there is real science behind it might be a little comforting and maybe convince them more that hey you know if i eat better or if i don't it will have an effect on my brain and my mood and how i feel so I don't know, maybe, maybe it's worth getting a little nerdy on some of the patients. I'm sure you know which ones are interested in that and which ones aren't. Yeah, no, what I used to do is I would give my patients the research articles or at least the, the front page of the abstract of, on, on what I recommend. But then I find that they don't read it. They don't refer back to it. So, and it takes a lot of energy to, you know, get all these papers, collate them and like, you know, put them in binders. And I used to put a lot of effort into that. Now I don't do it. Yeah. Well, do you <laughs> find that most people just want an easy solution? You know, if I can just take a pill and, yeah. you know, poof, everything's going to be better Then let's do that. Yes. Yes. There is this magical thinking that, you know, and I get this a lot, um, Patients will say, you know, fix me, fix my problem. Don't you have the answer? Don't you have the solution? And I always, I say to them, you know, I don't have the answer. If I had a magic wand and I could make you well, I would, but I don't. And then I throw, I throw it back to them. You know, what are you willing to do? What are you willing to do to be happy again? What changes are you willing to make to get rid of this stress? this anxiety, this problem. And so it is very much that um, you have to make the changes in your life. I can only be the coach and, and tell you, you know, the way and give you some broad outlines of what would be best, but you have to make the change yourself. Yeah. That, that can be um, hard for people sometimes. Yeah. And it's almost always easier. That's why everyone is on Zoloft because it's so easy to take a pill, but it's not easy to say to your boss, hey, stop abusing me. Or not easy to say to your husband or spouse, we got to work on things and we have to see eye to eye again. Or say to your children, you know, you need to toe the line. It's, it's hard. And that's the work of therapy. I mean, that's where true growth 
happens. Yeah, I totally agree with that. But you know, those are habits. I mean, those are, if you've gotten into the habit of not speaking up for yourself and not saying what you need in a relationship and not asserting yourself in your profession, you develop those habits over time. That's what you've grown accustomed to, but you can still change those habits. It's not going to happen overnight, but I find that when people practice saying no, or, you know, just speaking up for themselves and saying what they really want, it starts to get easier. The first time might be hard, but with each subsequent occasion, it gets a little easier. Yes, yes, exactly. You're, you're right on because saying no is a very powerful way of putting up a boundary. Saying no is the first thing that you have to do to, to say, you know, I'm, I'm putting a boundary up here and I would like for you to respect it. And so, you know, one thing that people who are depressed have in common is that it's very difficult for them to assert themselves. They feel guilty. They feel they're not worthy or somehow in their childhood that they got the feeling that they cannot stand up for themselves. So um, one thing that I do from time to time talk about with patients is the ability to assert yourself. Now you're an attorney. So in your training, you probably learned very early on, very important to assert yourself. Yeah. Well, I think I had that natural ability and that's probably how I ended up doing what I do. But I can say that I think a lot of women in particular, and myself included, I think sometimes we want to be all things to all people and we have a hard time saying, no, you know, I want to help you with that, but I just don't have time. You know, I I would be sacrificing my schedule and other things that I need to do. Well, actually, you don't even need to provide an explanation, but I think sometimes I'll look at my schedule and, and see how did I get so overbooked? And I'll realize, well, because I couldn't say no, I can't do that that week or no, I can't help you move or I can't do this or that because we always want to say yes. We always want to be the good friend or the good spouse or the good whatever. And in the process, we're not really paying enough attention to what we need on any given day. Do you see that more with women? Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, you get like people who push back and say, well, if you're a good friend, you would help me move. Or if you love me, you would do this. And um, so that gets really tricky because then they're like laying on the guilt. Yeah. Um, But um, there's this wonderful book that I tell patients to read. Um, It's called When I Say No, I Feel Guilty. That's exactly, you know, what it is. And in that book, it it says, it gives you some really good tips on how to assert yourself and how to say no in a nice way and in a strong way too. Um, But yeah, it's, it's like, it's as if, you know, um, there was some rule book that, you know, if you're a friend, you need to do this. No, there's no such rule that says that, you know, and as, as soon as you poke through like, their distortions, you can say, no, I can still be your friend and not help you move. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. I mean, I think at the end of the day, it's really just about not always putting everyone else's needs before yours. I think we're taught from a young age that, you know, not to be selfish and to be nice, whatever that means, right. To be polite 
and somehow we grow up and this kind of morphs into always feeling like we have to put everyone else's needs and wants before ours. But then when do our needs and wants get tended to? How are we doing that? Yeah. And I mean, I think especially for women, this comes into play. Um, and, um, and with everyone, it's a little different because when I see men, uh, oftentimes they're very externalizing. They're not internalizing like women. And then when I see kids, it's a whole other ball game altogether. So every subset has like their different issues, which I've been practicing now for 15 years. So I get a sense of what the patterns are, because when you see enough patterns of how people respond to adversity or to stress, you get an idea um, of what the patterns are. But anyway, yeah, so with women, um, there's a subset of women who are, you know, they feel overly responsible. Everything is, you know, they have to, it's their responsibility. And that creates a lot of stress, a lot of feelings of resentment too. And so in, in those people, um, they really would benefit from learning about assertiveness. Um, we do have, we had a course in my practice where they did like assertive, assertiveness training and it is very helpful. I love that assertiveness training. People, yeah. it. it sounds basic, but so many people don't know how to stand up for themselves. I mean, I see this a lot in my own practice, especially with women who have gotten accustomed to being in a marriage for many years with a husband who made a lot of the decisions and they would just defer to the husband largely because they just didn't want to have any friction in the relationship. And you'll see how they do that in the divorce process too. They don't speak up for what they want. They're really afraid to assert themselves. And it sort of goes beyond the scope of my, you know, my, what I've been retained to do and my skills sometimes to help them do that. I do wish there was just some, some course or a coaching program or someone like you that I could send them to, to really help them do that. Is this by any chance something you do online? Maybe, maybe people from other states could participate. I used to not do online work, but now my work is exclusively online. <laughs> but I don't, the problem is physicians can't practice across states. So I have a license in California. And so I only see patients that live in California. Okay. So the person has to live in California too. Yeah. Yeah. Reside permanently in California. But, you know, there are books that you can refer them to. Um the one that I mentioned, um, When I Say No, I Feel Guilty. That's an excellent book. It's an easy read. And you could read it in like two to three days, which is what I did. Um, and it's very entertaining because there's a lot of like little anecdotes. Um, another one that I really like is The Feeling Good Handbook by uh, Dr. David Burns. And that is um, that's cognitive behavioral therapy in a book. And it's... Um, geared towards um, laymen. So everything is in down to earth terms. And it's also a very entertaining and easy read. Um, The Feeling Good Handbook by David Burns. He's my, uh, David Burns was my my mentor for many years. So um, he's excellent. And he lives in Palo Alto. 
Well, I will put links to these in the show notes for people that would yeah. read them and I'll check them out too. I was actually going to ask you for, to give me some book recommendations. I'm not sure if I mentioned that to you already, but that's something I love to do is ask people for book recommendations. Um, let's talk about some other things that don't affect um, most of us. And that's things like schizophrenia and um, bipolar and things of that nature where people, I, I, I think we all consider them to be a little more serious. What, what is the science behind those? I know I'm asking a really broad question, but are these things that necessarily have to be treated with drugs? Oh, yes. Yeah. It's, I mean, again, if you have schizophrenia, that's the only treatment. But, you know, when you have a first break psychosis, then it's not clear whether it's schizophrenia or just, you know, um, a brief psychotic disorder. And in those cases, only time will tell. So, for example, if you keep having schizophrenic, if you keep having psychotic breaks, then it's no longer a brief psychotic disorder, it's a schizophrenia. Um, having said that, you know, um, now with the legalization of marijuana, you're seeing a lot of schizophrenia, a lot of drug-induced schizophrenia. Um, and it's really sad because sometimes nothing works when it's marijuana-induced. Like I've tried multiple medications on some of the teenagers that I see um, and nothing seems to work. Um, and they, they have these psychotic episodes for six months at a time. Um, and finally we do some, we do find something that works, but it's really scary. That is you, scary. I had no idea that that could happen. So is this something that actually causes a psychotic break in someone or did they have a, maybe a predisposition? To- yes. Yes. Okay. They have, usually they have a pre preexisting or predisposition to a psychotic illness or a family history, someone in the family with bipolar or schizophrenia. And normally, you know, these genes wouldn't become activated, but they start using marijuana and it has to be heavy marijuana usage. So it's not like, oh, once a month or twice a month, it's every single day, multiple times a day. And in the past, the marijuana was laced with things like, ecstasy, ketamine, um, or spice. But nowadays, the marijuana is also very powerful because um, the the marijuana growers have been able to cultivate strains that have ever more content of cannabis. So whereas in the 70s, maybe there would be like 3% cannabis, which is the active compound. Now we're seeing strains with 30% cannabis, you know, um, tetrahydrocannabinoids. And that can be very dangerous in someone whose brain is predisposed to psychotic disorders. So that can unmask the psychotic predisposition and cause them to have schizophrenia, even though they may not have developed it. Wow. So they, you could actually have somebody who maybe had a predisposition to being schizophrenic, but never experiments with marijuana. Well, it sounds like you're talking about more than experimenting, but, but for the fact that they started to use marijuana excessively, they may not have ever actually realized that predisposition. That's wow. That's crazy. That's crazy. Excuse the pun. (laughs) 
there's so much research we have right now. So it's not just drugs, but if you have a set of genes that you inherited from your parents or grandparents that predispose you to mental illness, serious mental illness like schizophrenia or bipolar, um, but your life is fine, you know, so there are, then you never develop it, but there are some things that can predispose you. So number one, childhood adversity, particularly between two parents who are arguing a lot, if there's a lot of conflict in their house, that sort of adversity can kick up those genes. Drug use, like I mentioned, the marijuana, cocaine, um, street drugs like fencyclidine, um, head trauma, if you hit your head too many times playing soccer, hit your head in a car accident, that can cause it. Viral infections, Certain viral infections can cause brain inflammation. We mentioned inflammation is very bad on the brain and can have long lasting consequences. So a few of those things, if you have it and you have the predisposition, that can cause you to develop a psychotic disorder. Wow. And alcohol too. Yes. Alcohol would fall under the drug use. Heavy. It has to be heavy. I mean, we're not talking about like a glass of wine at night. I mean, we're talking about a lot. Yeah. And how, in your opinion, how long would one need to do that? Like if you, let's say you start drinking and using drugs at 15. I mean, when, and I know that's hard for you to predict, it depends on the person, but could you actually have a psychotic break in a year or would it take longer probably? Yeah, it's hard to say. Um, but Increasingly, um, we've been seeing in um, psychiatry more psychotic problems happening in kids, um, teenagers, and it's almost always they have had a period of heavy, heavy marijuana use. We're not talking about heavy use for a month, but we're talking about months and months, maybe even a year. But we already know from our data that if you have heavy marijuana use, as in daily marijuana use, in your teenage years from the age of 12 to 18, that can result in a seven point reduction in your IQ. That's a lot. <laughs> Getting schizophrenia that is associated with seven or eight points reduction in your IQ. And that's why marijuana is not legal in, in teenagers. It's only legal if you're over the age of 21, which people don't really realize. They're like, Oh, it's legal. It's fine. No, it's not fine. If you're a teenager, Mm. Well, you know what? It's not even fine if you're an adult because you're, you can still damage your brain if you're using these things excessively. Yeah. And the key word is excessive because I, there's a lot of people who use marijuana recreationally and they're fine, you know, and even if you use it like semi-regularly, it's okay. And marijuana is approved for the treatment of chronic pain, migraines, um, cancer related, uh, loss of appetite. So it, it's a risk and benefit sort of um, evaluation. But yeah, heavy, heavy use can cause problems. But even in adults, some people use it heavily and they never get addicted. They're completely fine. Um, it just depends on your genes. And we don't know who's got the genes that will make it a problem for them. She bet there's not just some tests that you could do. When you're a kid and no, okay, well, I guess I better not use drugs because I'm going to be one of those people that either becomes schizophrenic or becomes an addict. Yeah. The best bet is to sit down with your parents and have a very serious conversation. What is in my family history? 
And some people don't want to talk about that. Some people want to keep it a secret. So, you know, it's really important to have that information out there to their offspring so that they know what their risks are. Hmm. For a psychiatrist, is there any sort of case that's considered juicy? I mean, do you get more stimulation or intellectual engagement from treating someone who has schizophrenia as opposed to someone who comes in with generalized anxiety? Well, the schizophrenic cases don't always end up well uh, because it's such a severe, severe disorder and it frequently causes brain damage that the end the end result after decades of schizophrenia is uh, dementia. And so it doesn't end well, especially because a lot of people don't even want to take the medication. So those are really sad, really sad for me. And I don't find them very rewarding, but um, I like seeing people who, um, you know, they're, they're like, um, have a lot of insight and curious and they ask questions and they're motivated and they really want to help themselves. And so those are my favorite patients because they almost always get better. And I like to see that. Yeah. You want to see them get better. Yeah. Um, sometimes though, you know, the problem with people who have schizophrenia is they don't know they have a problem they're, they lack the insight. And that's a hallmark symptom of schizophrenia is that they have no insight. They don't think that hearing voices, having paranoia is, is a problem. They think it's completely normal. Um, and so they won't take the medication. It's really hard to tell them, no, you have a problem. They don't want to hear it and they get angry. Well, did you see that movie, A Beautiful Mind? Yeah, I did. I mean, I think if there's ever been anything that could show the experience of mental illness, it was that because it starts out in the beginning with the, the main character, um, you know, engaged in this. Um, it's been a while since I saw it, but in some, what was he, some sort of, um, you know, he was trying to solve some sort of problem, like some yeah. investigation, right? And it seemed very real. It yeah, he was real. a mathematician and he was brilliant he was a genius and then he developed paranoid delusions yes and and you learn i mean they spend like the first at least 15 minutes of the movie with him fully engaged in this delusion but you don't know as the viewer it's a delusion which kind of mirrors his experience is he doesn't know it's a delusion either so no, it's fascinating. I, and it's so rare for someone with schizophrenia to develop the insight. Because uh, eventually in the movie, he becomes aware that, oh, these are delusions. Oh, they're not real. And then the viewer gets that insight as well. And so you're like, wow. Yes. But even as the viewer, when at least the, the way I experienced it, when even when they when they revealed to you that this is all a delusion, this wasn't real, you still, as the viewer, initially have a hard time with it. Like, no, that that was real. That all made sense. And then you realize that, no, it wasn't. It, it was a delusion. And I can't imagine what it's like to actually be that person who you are being told that that experience is a delusion. It's not real. And 
to, to actually have to just trust someone who's telling you that's a delusion, but not really believe it deep inside. Yeah. And that's the exact feeling I think a lot of schizophrenics have is that, oh, my doctor says it's not real. Okay. No, the doctor really doesn't understand me at all because it is real. Yeah. But in a highly intelligent people sometimes do have insight and they sometimes can overcome their delusions. What about people who are bipolar? I mean, do they, is it a similar, a similar experience for them? So the people who are bipolar are, they do have insight unless they have bipolar with schizophrenia, then their insight is a little bit less, but then the brain damage that comes from being in the psychotic process is, is more severe. So we find that they have more brain shrinkage. And when your brain shrinks more, obviously your insight gets even less. Um, but if just classic bipolar, they have insight, they know they have a problem, but they love being manic. Like when you're in that manic state, your brain is like hypermetabolic. It's like functioning 10 times faster. You get a lot done. You have these fantastic ideas and your creativity is sky high and you don't sleep as much and you feel great and you feel on top of the world and they love that and they don't want that to go away. And then, but you know, eventually that mania proceeds to become reckless where they do crazy things like um, speed the car, get into car accidents, get into fights with people, get into legal problems, spend a ton of money, travel um, impulsively, and then it gets them into trouble. And then beyond that, they progress to the psychotic phase where they hear voices, they lose touch with reality. Um, so it isn't always you know, great because eventually it produces more severe symptoms and then that requires treatment. But then you treat them and then they're like, they feel blah, they're no longer creative, they're no longer like energetic and happy, they're just normal and they don't like it. Yeah, I think I've heard that. I have a friend who's bipolar and she described it that way, that she didn't like when she was on the meds, but but she knew why it was necessary. So what is the actual, what's happening, happening from a science or, you know, brain chemistry standpoint when someone is psychotic, what is causing that? Okay. So the fast answer is basically you have too much dopamine going on in the brain and excessive dopamine causes um, problems and it causes you to sort of like lose touch with reality, you start to get these abnormal thoughts, um, delusions that do not have any bearing on reality. Um, but that's just the final culmination of the psychotic process. I mean, in terms of like the pathophysiology, you know, it's what goes on in the brain, the abnormality occurs years before the actual psychotic event. It's just a slow progression until you see like that massive dopamine. And um, that's when you start to see the real, the problems in their behavior. But um, the treatment is, is the same. It's an antipsychotic, a dopamine blocker. Well, is there any way that you could actually monitor people's brains to see how this um, dopamine is progressing? Like, could you predict the psychotic break or is there just really no way to do that? 
So they've done brain imaging studies um, and there is no, no set pattern in terms of brain imaging um, on who will develop the psychotic symptoms and who won't. Um, so that hasn't really been pinpointed. And um, they've looked at lab um, findings. We haven't been able to find anything really. So that's still research that's ongoing. And hopefully one day we'll find a marker either in brain imaging or blood that can help us to predict who will develop a psychotic disorder, but it's not today. Oh, darn. That would be incredible social utility. Yeah. I would love to invest in that company, but I have no idea. Okay. So final question, and then I'm going to give you your day back because I appreciate the time that you've given me. Um, oh, it's, it's my pleasure. Oh, thank you so much. So when is the actual brain damage happening? Is it during the psychotic break? Yes. Yes. Um, there's so many excitotoxic. That's a very long word, but excitotoxic means that, you know, um, the brain is being overexcited by the dopamine and it's sort of like it's short circuiting, you know, there's too many inputs going on. It's short circuiting and that causes brain damage and neuronal death. And if that happens enough, there's enough psychotic processes through the years. Eventually you do see brain shrinkage in people who have both schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. And um, actually, even depressive disorders, severe depression episodes can be neurotoxic as well. So all the more reason why, you know, you really want to get your mental health problems treated. Yeah. Um, so I think, I feel like the biggest takeaways for me from this conversation has been take care of your gut and take care of your brain. Uh, and they're both connected. So you're, you're really kind of taking care of both when you do that. Yes, yes. And take care of your brain. Don't get into any head trauma. Don't use excessive drugs, you know. Just say no. <laughs> Just say no. <laughs> so Nancy Reagan was right. Just say no, but for, for a variety of reasons. Say it um, nicely. But <laughs> yes, yes. Oh, well, thank you. This was really fascinating. I, I really feel like I could just talk about this all day with you. So if you ever, you know, get bored and want to chat, feel free to give me a call. Yeah, no, you can, if you have any other questions, feel free to send me a message or um, uh, email. Um, yeah, it was great talking to you. I love talking about this because it's so fascinating to me. And I'm, I'm really glad that I'm able to share it with you and your viewers today. It is. And this was such great information that um, I, I just don't think is out there in, in the community for the public, obviously in a level that, that non-physicians can understand. And I would like to see there be more attention drawn to it. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of people and that's why I decided to, you know, get my Instagram account going and put it out there. But there's a lot of um, podcasts on mental health and um, dietary health. So um, I like found my fitness. That's a really good one. Um, she has an Instagram. Uh, Rhonda Patrick. Uh, she's a researcher. Um, Max Lugavere. He's he's uh, I think he's a he has a podcast on like dietary uh, and nutritious uh, nutrition information. Um, so there's a lot of people who are working hard to get, you know, the latest scientific research out there. Um, but yeah, it's 
the disseminating of the information is hard. Well, I love your Instagram page. I strongly encourage people to follow it because not only do you have some really great information, like what we're talking about today, but you really show your sense of humor on there. (laughs) So you're not a stuffy doctor, which we, we can see from this interview, but if you want to get some laughs too, you've got a a funny post about Xanax on here. So Check out Dr. Lou. She's at Dr. Jenna Lou on Instagram. That's at D-R-J-E-N-N-A-L-U-U. And I will also have a link to that in the show notes. Great. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Wake Up Call, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to know more about me, you can find out more on my website, christinaprevitt.com. And be sure to sign up for my newsletter where I talk about everything that I'm reading, learning, listening to, doing, basically everything that I'm obsessed with right now. Follow me on social media. Look up Wake Up Call, the podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you'd like to be a guest on Wake Up Call or there's someone you'd like to hear on my podcast, please email me at wakeupcallthepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and see you next time.